Uh, you know, sometimes with, with Christians, we tend to get disappointed in circumstances as they're unfolding through life or in this world. And uh, just in way of quick reminder, our agenda has not changed. Our mission has not changed. Never does. Um, a lot of times Christians think that our solution to the problems of this world comes from the top down. I want to remind you, it comes from the bottom up, one life at a time, one interaction at a time. That's our mission. Amen? Well, we are in a series called The Invitation. It's time with Jesus. We're looking at how Jesus invites us into these different moments in life. And today we're going to be in John chapter 4. I really hope you brought a Bible with you today. It is going to massively help out. Open your Bibles up to John chapter 4 as we get rolling today. We're spending our time exclusively in the text today. We're going to be focusing in on this one passage and really unpacking the passage, okay? Um, before we do that, we need to check our scripture memorization and see if anyone has actually gotten started on this yet. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30. You ready? Three kind of distinct movements in this passage. You can memorize these one line at a time. It, it'll help you. Ready? Here we go. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is comfortable, and my burden is light. That is, I think, the best that you guys have done yet. In a, are fantastic. You guys are actually really, really checking this out. If you need that particular verse in the version we're memorizing it from, New American Standard Bible, you can also grab last week's uh, outline for the message. It's on there if you want to just put that someplace where you can be reading it and memorizing it. How do you feel about waiting? Don't like it. Tend to not like it. Does it bother you? For most of us, that answer kind of depends on what we're waiting for. If waiting is, is what it normally is for us, part of the ordinary course of this life, we might see it as mundane, it might be described even as drudgery. That's a great word, isn't it? Everyone say drudgery. Drudgery. Uh, for example, waiting on your oil change or waiting on fast food that is not so fast, right? These are mundane waitings. Maybe you're waiting for your spouse to get ready to go to somewhere, and, and that just seems to drag on and on and on. Drudgery, that is a good way to describe that. And for many of us, we're rolling through life that way. You're just kind of waiting for the moment to be done so that you can get to the next moment and get to the next moment and get to the next moment. But there are things worse than drudgery. What if you're waiting on something that feels evil, something that is truly terrible? So you're waiting for bad news from the doctor, or you're waiting to hear whether or not you have jury duty. Or maybe you're waiting to hear what's happened to the flight you're about to take, you know, that has been canceled. In other words, waiting to hear about how much longer you're going to be waiting, right? We might call this dread or even fear. It's waiting for something that is bad news. But there's another type of waiting. What if we're waiting for something that is good or potentially even great? It feels different, doesn't it? There's a whole different feeling to something like that. So maybe you're waiting for a baby to be born, or you're waiting for uh, a vacation that you've really been looking forward to, and you're going to be spending time on that vacation. Maybe you're waiting to see loved ones after an extended separation, or perhaps you're waiting on something that is a surprise. Somebody's let you know that there's something good coming along, but they haven't told you what. 
There's a different feeling about that, isn't there? Such waiting doesn't feel like drudgery or dread. Rather, this waiting we could describe as anticipation. It is riddled with joy. It is perhaps even exhilarating. You know what kind of waiting I'm talking about, right? I believe most human lives could be summed up in these terms. There are some human beings who live with this perpetual sense of drudgery. All of life is you know, waiting in line at the Department of Motor Vehicles. And that's what it feels like. You know, day after day, that's what life is. And there are other people who go through life, and, and it's not just that they're engaged in this drudgery, but look, if there's no eternity, if there's no life after death, no real ultimate meaning or purpose, then people look forward and they go, I see the end of this line. I see where we're going. I know how this ends. And there becomes this certain dread that begins to emerge as the fear of death and the fear of being forever separated from any existence emerges in those people. But what gets us to the third category? If life is either drudgery or dread, what moves us to that place of anticipation? I will tell you what will move you there more thoroughly than anything else. It is hearing a voice from outside of this world. It is. If you take in a word, if you hear a word, if you get a word from God, it alters everything about what is going on in your life. That is the kind of interruption most of us would very much like to have. Getting a word from God that reveals to us what we're really waiting for. Better yet, hearing from the word of God what it is we're waiting for. We're going to talk about that type of interruption today. So I hope you've got your Bibles open to John chapter 4. We're going to dig in after we open with a word of prayer. John chapter 4, open up to that passage and let's pray. Our Lord and God, we are waiting. We expect your arrival. We, we expect to hear from you today. So, Lord, we're calling out for your word, your word today. As we go through this story, this interaction that we know is so purposeful, so meaningful for our lives and our experience, God, open up our hearts and minds to receive your spirit, to learn from you, and then to put these things into practice. Thank you so much for your word. Give it to us this day, Father. It's in your name we pray. Amen. What are you waiting for? great phrase. What are you waiting for? Every time I hear that phrase, my, my immediate thought goes to Lord of the Rings, not just because I'm a nerd, but because, because it's said over and over again in that movie. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. There are several times where they're, they're, somebody is desiring to destroy the ring, and they're just not doing it. And so they say, what are you waiting for? Right? And, and so it's, it's this, get rid of this thing. Let's get it done. And I, when I hear the word words, what are you waiting for, my mind immediately moves to that. But there are all of us that are sort of waiting on something. Maybe it is that destruction of great evil in our lives, but it is something that we are anticipating or waiting on. You don't think about your life typically like that, but here's a great spiritual question you could ask yourself anywhere at any time. What are you waiting for? What is it you're looking for right now? What are you expecting to happen? Many of us would describe our waiting as anticipation, as desiring something. And especially in the teen years, in the young 20s, you tend to see this. It's this sort of optimism about life. That passes as we go through life, doesn't it? Kind of that grandiose expectation of what's coming down the line begins to diminish and diminish and diminish. But early on, I mean, think about it, what people tend to anticipate. They have these perceived needs or desires, things that they want and they're looking forward to. So something like my big break. 
I just need one opportunity to prove myself. And when I've got that, I'm going to go for it. And people will see who I am, and I will rise above my circumstances. I just need my big break, my promotion, my boss to notice. For some people, it's romance. I'm waiting for romance. If I can just meet that special someone, I know it'll be just like a Disney movie. There will be staring into one another's eyes, and the music will swell, and it's going to be magnificent. And of course it will. That's exactly how it works, kids. Don't expect anything else. Ruin your lives. Some of us are waiting for novelty. We just want something new and exciting to experience. So, so life is going from one movie to the next. Did you hear what's coming out in cinemas? And you're waiting for that. You're waiting for the next video game. Or you're waiting for the next piece of music or, or song. Or, or you're waiting for the, 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 the time and opportunity for your team to win whatever championship. Right? It is, it's just one fantasy novelty on top of the next. Just something to entertain me here and now. If I can just get that, that would be enough, right? No. It's always one more, isn't it? For some, we're waiting on security. I just want for things to feel secure. Can I suggest that maybe the Lord does not want that for us? That maybe that's something that we might look for throughout this life, and we might try to seek it everywhere else, but the only one place you will ever find that is in him? Some of us want something that changes everything. I think if you reflect deeply about yourself, what you want more than anything else is someone or something to come along that alters your life entirely. A shakeup in the normal. Are you familiar with the idea of zombie apocalypse? Zombie apocalypse, big theme during these last couple decades for a lot of people. The idea that suddenly that there's this rampant zombie population and you are suddenly thrown into a circumstance where you're fighting for your own survival. Uh, one of my favorite memes along these lines, and, and you have bumper stickers uh, to this effect. I think I put one up on the screen. The hardest thing about zombie apocalypse is pretending like I'm not excited. Now, you might not be excited about zombie apocalypse, but here's what I can tell you from having spoken with a lot of men and a lot of young men. There are people who are. The idea that this world would be full, would be rife with zombies trying to kill you, and you had to fight for your survival is very appealing to a lot of people. They're just like, yes, I mean, that would be, take the norm and just throw it away. We would be in something entirely new. And you have to ask yourself, why would anybody think that? Because they just want a major shakeup. They don't want life to keep going the way it is. They're waiting on something that changes everything. If you're not a big fan of zombie apocalypse, let me just see if I can throw it to you in a way that you would accept and understand. Let's imagine that every church in the world today, there was someone who stood up in every congregation and in the same words, as a tongue of fire appeared above their head, said, the Lord God has declared this to you. There will be a famine this year and many will die. And that person sat down, but it happened at every church and you knew that it happened at every church. Let me ask you this question. Would you be excited? You might think, oh, famines are terrible. But we had a word from the Lord. There was a voice from beyond. There was a voice from outside. And I know that God is doing something. If you, you think of this in Chronicles of Narnia terms, Aslan is on the move, right? There's, there's something about God moving in space-time history that would excite us, even if the idea, even if the word were dreadful. 
we have anticipation, maybe because of perceived needs or desires, maybe because we want something that changes or someone that changes everything. But then there's kind of the second category, these, the second mode of waiting that is not anticipation. We might call it hesitation or even trepidation. It's waiting because you're afraid. Waiting because you know that disaster might show up. I know it's going to get worse. Do you have that attitude about life? A Christian, by the way, should never have that attitude about life. For a non-Christian, this fits. Because, yeah, you're going to get sick, you're going to grow old, you're going to die, everybody you love is going away. If there is no eternity. But for a Christian, we know what comes next. We know what happens next. And so we should never have this sort of ultimate dread. We will see everyone we love again if they are in Christ. I know it's going to get worse. Everything's going to fall apart. Maybe you're operating from a sense of fear, and what you're waiting on is a fearful thing. I don't know what I'm waiting for. I don't know what's going to happen next. I'm afraid of change. I'm afraid of restarting life. I'm afraid of heading off in a new direction. And so we hesitate. We have trepidation. Let's look at chapter 4, verse 5. Our story is one that probably most of you are familiar with. I'm sure you've heard it a number of times. You will be reading it quite often this year, so long as you're involved in your Bible reading plan. But I want to dig deep into this story, and I want to see what's going on here. Sometimes we'll read a story about Jesus' interaction, and we just blow past it quickly. Let's take our time and really investigate it today. John chapter 4, verse 5. So he came to a city, that is he, that is Jesus, came to a city in Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of land that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, tired from his journey, was just sitting by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Sometimes our waiting could be described as mindless. You've all done mindless waiting, haven't you? Where you just sit and zone out and there is nothing going on in your brain. Guys are better than this at girls. Uh, most guys can just zone, I mean, we can just be not there for a while. Jesus comes and he is waiting. And I think he's waiting on what we might call divine appointment. Jesus didn't have to come to Samaria, but he did. He came to this region. We'll talk about why in a moment, but he came to this region for a divine appointment. Some of us who are waiting mindlessly are waiting for an interruption. We just want something new or different to happen. And that is what is going to happen to this poor woman who comes shuffling out to the well. Her life is about to be changed forever. She is waiting in order to be alone. Women were expected in this day and age to get water. You cannot understand the story we're about to read unless you understand the woman's role of being the water gatherer in the ancient world. You see, in the Middle East, water was important, and you couldn't just go crank on a, sp a spigot somewhere. Every city, every place of dwelling that human beings had was formed around a water source or several water sources. And this is no exception. It was the role of every woman every day to go out and gather water for her family. And so, historically, we see this. We see this in the archaeological record. But a woman would usually grab a pole that held uh, a couple jars, and she would go out when? At the hottest time of the day? No. She would go out at dawn or at dusk, at the cool of the day. Because you did not want to be dragging 75, 80, 100 pounds of water from one place to the next during the heat of the day. In fact, you just generally in the Middle East, you don't want to be out during the heat of the day. And so women would go out to gather water, but it was more than just like going to get water for the family. I mean, imagine this. In an ancient town, every woman from every house goes and gathers at the wells. 
And so this became a socializing opportunity for most women. As they came together, how many women could draw water at once? Just one. There was just one woman at a time. So everybody else had to stand around. And inevitably, you talked about your family, you talked about life, you talked about the goings-on of the town. It became sort of a big gossip circle for all of the women in the city. Kind of the, the premier version of uh, socializing at the water cooler, right? And so women would gather together, and they would all be speaking and spending time with one another. And that happened in the morning, and it happened in the evening, but it did not happen in the afternoon. Nobody wanted to go out and gather water at noon. And so here is Jesus. He's at the sixth hour, which is about noon, and he's sitting down at this well, completely tired, and a woman comes out to draw water. Now, this tells us something about her right at the outset. She does not want to be around other women. She doesn't want to be part of the gossip circle because maybe she is the butt of a lot of the conversation at the gossip circle. She is probably, most probably, ostracized by most of the women in this town. And we'll see why as we go along. Regarding Jacob's well at Sychar, there's good archaeological evidence that this was not the closest well to Sychar. There are a number of wells she would have passed by in order to get to this one. In other words, she is going way out of her way. She has waited, rather than gathering, gathering water at the morning, in order to be alone. She's trying to isolate herself. Do you know people like that? Are you one of those? Unfortunately for her, Jesus had in mind an interaction. So while she's trying to actively avoid a social gathering, John chapter 4, we read this, verse 7. A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. Jesus did not ask her. Jesus said to her, it's not, please give me a drink. In the original language, it's, give me a drink. How weird is it that the, the God who forged the cosmos, the God who created the atomic structure of water, looks at a woman and goes, give me a drink. I could use some water from you. Verse 8, for his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. Jesus intentionally stayed back and outside of the city. Look at verse 9. So the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, though you were a Jew, were asking me for a drink, though I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. I want you to notice something. What Jesus did here was culturally completely inappropriate. If you haven't noticed it yet, Jesus was inappropriate a lot of the time. And the more you get to read him, the more you get to see what he does. He is not a respecter of social norms. He violates all kinds of norms and niceties, and that's what he's doing in this instance. What he did was unacceptable. A Jew did not talk to a Samaritan, but listen to me. In the whole of the Middle Eastern world, a man did not talk to a woman who was not part of his family. It was not done unless you had illicit purposes on your mind. Very unacceptable. So when Jesus asked for her for a drink of water, I want you to notice that she does not volunteer at the outset. I'm married, sir. Don't talk to me. Which would have been a good response. Or ignoring him entirely. She begins conversing with him. Jesus violates norms. Jesus disrupts a lot of what we expect to happen in engagements with people. Remember how the Pharisees approach Jesus later on in his ministry? They're trying to trap him. And so they engage in this kind of bout of buttering him up. You know, they're trying to lure him into carelessness. Mark chapter 12, verse 14, here's what they say. 
Teacher, they said, we know you are honest and seek favor from no one. Indeed, you are impartial and teach the way of God in accordance with truth. Now again, they're trying to butter him up. They're trying to lure him into something. But see what they said. We know that you don't care what people think. Because he didn't. Because so much of his interaction goes beyond what the culture would have thought was okay. They said to him, we know what kind of person you are. You act like an Old Testament prophet. You say things that make people uncomfortable. A lot of us think we'd be real cozy with Jesus, real chummy with him, if he came to our church. Let me tell you, he would be the guy that made you go, ooh. It, it just, just, he, he would say things that disrupted what we thought and what we believed because that's who Jesus is. A good Jew would not drink from a jar used by a Samaritan woman. It was not done. So her question is probably one that was meant to draw him back on track. She's essentially pointing out to him, sir, what you're doing is sort of inappropriate. How is it? Why, why would you, being a Jew, talk to me, a Samaritan, and a woman at that? But Jesus presses the interruption. I think she probably expected derision or maybe scoffing. She probably expected that that conversation would be over as soon as she identified who she was and who he was. But Jesus launches right into deep discussion. He's not about to start her at the beginning. He does not pull out the kindergarten gospel manual. Verse 10, Jesus replied to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who is saying it to you, give, or who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Hey, we just had a discussion about this. Do you guys remember last week talking about the term living water? Who can give living water? Only one entity gives living water, and it is God. Living water is water that comes up from a spring. Living water is water that falls from the sky, or water that is moving in a river. It is water that only God gives, as opposed to well water, which human beings acquire. So Jesus says to her, if you knew who I was, you would ask me, I would give you living water. Now, um, notice he's telling her at the front of this conversation that you, are, you don't know what you're doing. Spiritually, you're not, you're, not, you're not knowledgeable. When he says, if you knew, what he's saying is, you don't know. What's wrong with Jesus? This is not how you approach evangelism. Doesn't he know how to win friends and influence people? Can I suggest that maybe he knows exactly what he's doing? Just possible. She doesn't know what she's waiting for, but Jesus does. Everything that Jesus is about to do is going to draw her to the point where she asks the right question, where she gets to the point where she identifies, here is what I need most. And so he begins to ask her questions and make comments and say things that are spiritually deep that have her going, what am I looking for? What do I want? She's probably as confused as a person can possibly be at this point. What Jesus has said did not make sense to her. It doesn't stop him from saying it. He, Jesus, by the way, does not balk at all from saying things that make people go, what? Or make people go, that's confusing. Or make people, make people think, this guy's crazy. Most of us have the benefit of hindsight. So we can read what he says and go, oh, that makes sense. But most of these people in the circumstances did not have that benefit. Jesus does not start simple. He's not making a sales pitch. He's not seeker-driven. He just trots out serious spiritual truth, and maybe we should be like that. Maybe we should not softball the faith. 
Maybe we should not bring in the intro level for most people that we engage with who are non-believers. See, Jesus seemed to have this impression that he could speak about something of spiritual depth, and if a person was willing, they would be sufficiently intrigued to come along. Most of us don't approach things like that. We keep the spiritual depth reserved. Perhaps we should be more like Christ. She's waiting for the inevitable conflict. It's Samaritan and Jew. No Samaritan gets along with any Jew. This just does not happen. And so she tries to steer him back both to the physical realm, the ordinary, because this guy is starting to talk about God. And you know how comfortable people are when we talk about God. So she tries to put him on familiar terms. Let's talk about the physical realm. Let's talk about the tribalism that separates us. You're a Jew. I'm a, I'm, I'm a Samaritan. Let's keep things on those terms. I know that. We're talking about water, not God. And let me remind you of our differences, sir. Look at verse 11. She said to him, sir, you have no bucket and the well is deep. Physical. Physical. She doesn't want to talk about the spiritual. Where then do you get this living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. Hey, let me tell you something, buddy. We Samaritans have a well that was dug by our forefather. That's bragging rights. Let me remind you of how different you and I are. Jesus, though, is not going to be put off his game. Jesus is intent on continually interrupting her normal. She wants to drive it back to the ordinary, and he says, nothing doing. We're going to stay on the spiritual. We have different kinds of water. Jesus says, uh, he answered her, verse 13, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him shall never be thirsty. But the water I give him will become in him a fountain of water, springing up to eternal life. So let's think about water for a moment. Is Jesus trying to install a fountain in our bellies? Was that the goal? Is that what he's trying to say here? Now, she's probably as confused as anyone would be reading this for the first time or hearing this for the first time. So what is Jesus indicating? In the Middle East, water is life. Water is life. It occupied your day every day. It was something you had to think about every day. You don't think about water on a given basis like daily, do you? Like, you're never like, I hope that the sink works today. I hope that we don't run out of water. We're in a territory where that's just not even possible. In the Middle East, you know, they would get to some seasons where they would literally empty their cisterns. Their cisterns would be dry, and people had to survive on milk that came from the goats because the goats could still eat the dried grasses that were out there and glean some moisture from them. You don't think about water as often as people in the Middle East do, certainly not during this time period. Water is life. And it's spoken about this way in scriptures over and over again. For most people, it was perpetual labor. It was sweating. It was toiling. It was earning your life one jar at a time each and every day. What's the difference between a well and a spring? Human effort. In a well, you have to go draw your water. It is your labor. It is your toil. You are getting your water. And by the way, well water is not as good as spring water. Cistern water is not as good as spring water. That's man water. That's not living water. And Jesus is saying this, what I'm offering you is something that you don't get by your labor. What I'm offering you is something that I put into you, and life will generate from within you. Remember what living water is. It's water that only God can give. 
I'm not offering you well water. I'm not talking about dipping into this, this pool, this dirty pool at the bottom of this well. I'm talking about giving you a life that emerges from within. Jeremiah chapter 2, God condemns the people. Jeremiah, remember, is a prophet of God. And a prophet is somebody who hears the word of the Lord and then gives the word of the Lord to people. So he hears directly from God, like literally from God, and then he speaks to the people on God's behalf. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, listen to this. This is God speaking to his people. For my people have committed two evils. They have abandoned, that is, rejected me, the fountain of living water, and have carved out their own cisterns, broken cisterns, that cannot hold water. Why would God say this? Is he upset regarding their water storage and usage? How dare you carve out a cistern, people? No. He's speaking about something. He's saying, look, you're trying to create life by your own means. You're creating your own cisterns. Cisterns, by the way, were like, like little pools that were underground that would get in rainwater. They would collect rainwater. They're filthy. They're awful. You usually fed most of your livestock from them. You didn't want to drink from that yourself if you didn't have to. And he says, you're trying to make cisterns for yourself. You're trying to do this on your own. You are trying to bestow life on yourself. And your cistern won't even hold water. Your religious system isn't even working. And I'm offering you living water. I'm trying to give you life. And it is clean and it is pure. And you say to me, we don't want that. We'll dig our own. We'll do it our own way. Jeremiah is indicating that he, that is God, desires to be the source of life. After Jesus sends her reeling again with this statement, I'm going to make water spring up in your belly. Things start to flip. She recognizes something about this man. He's either crazy or he's doing something. And so Jesus has interrupted her normal. He's not going to let her be normal. He's not going to let her just deal with the physical, not going to let her just deal with the tribalism. But then he drives her to this point where she is waiting for significance, and she begins to recognize it. I'm waiting for something more. He stops her with painful reality. She's willing to entertain the physical implications of having this living water. You remember when Jesus first started asking her, or first started talking to her, he said, listen, if you knew who asked you for water, you'd ask him, and he'd give you living water. So she's like, I'll play ball on this. If I don't have to go to the well every day, we'll keep this physical, then, then sure. Go ahead and give me some of this water. Look at verse uh, 15. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty, nor come to the well here to draw water. Water is a daily need. And she says, look, if you're going to meet my physical needs, great. Let's do that. Go ahead and give that to me. Ease my physical burden. She's saying, maybe that's what I'm waiting for, just a, a, an easier life. Jesus knows that's not what she's waiting for. Look at verse 16. He said to her, go and get your husband and come here. Now, if she thought that they were going to have an illicit engagement, if they, she thought that that's where things were headed, he's putting, a, he's putting a stamp on that to just say, Let's, let me just set you straight on this. Go get your husband. Now, look at how she responds. Sir, I have no husband. In the Middle Eastern terms, this, was, this would be, in, in essence, saying, I'm available. Sir, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you've said correctly I have no husband. Now, notice she's trying to lie to him. And he says, yeah, what you're saying is true. You have no husband. You have had five husbands, and the man whom you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Wherever she thought this was going, 
He just threw a cold bucket of water on her, whatever, whatever she was perceiving was going to happen here. Cold reality slams home. This woman is a five-time loser. Five failed marriages, and the man she lives with is now, lives with now is not her husband. Now, when you have a failed marriage, it might not be your fault. Could be you're married, a dirtbag, scumbag. Could be things have gone really sour in the marriage. That might not be your fault. When you've had two failed marriages, it's a cause for introspection. Once you get to three failed marriages, there is a common denominator, and it's you. When you've hit four failed marriages, five failed marriages. I can pretty much guarantee that this woman was an adulteress, that she was known as an adulteress. That these marriages did not end except that she went out and found someone else and went out and found someone else and went out and found someone else. Do you know your sin? He does. And he stops her with this. We're really good at deceiving ourselves. We're great at telling ourselves that what we do is completely justifiable. What we think is justifiable. The way we act is justifiable. And Jesus says, I know exactly who you are. Let me trot it out in front of you. Until you have sin, you have no shot at forgiveness. Until you have sin, you have no shot at forgiveness. Jesus brings forth her desperate reality. Remember what Jesus says in the scriptures. The physician doesn't come for the well. The physician shows up for the sick. If someone's sick, they can receive treatment. The Son of Man did not come to save the righteous. And we know from the scriptures, how many people are righteous? Not even one. But if you think that you're righteous... There's no help for you. Remember who was entering the kingdom of God first? Was it the Pharisees and those who were righteous? Righteous. No. It was tax collectors. It was sinners. I wonder what this woman had been waiting for. I wonder what she thought she was waiting for in life. Was it love? Mr. Wright had clearly been sought and traded in a number of times. Was she waiting for security? I mean, think about her life. It's degrading. One husband at a time, her life prospects are degrading and getting lower and lower and lower. People are not as willing to take her. She is less and less sure of her circumstances. Was she waiting for acceptance? We see that she's not getting that from the women of the town. Would you, as a wife, let this woman near your husband? Maybe she's at this point just waiting for some reason to go on. Her life has probably become increasingly desperate, less and less hope for something to change, for anything to change, for anyone to show up who can fix what's going on. Interestingly enough, she can find all these things right where she stands at this well. The love of her life is there before her. The security that she wants, a security that goes not just to death, but past it is right there. Acceptance. Unilateral acceptance. Taking her as she is right there. Some reason to go on, some mission is right in front of her. If she could just see it. She hasn't yet, but she will. Can I tell you that when he threw this cold bucket of water on whatever her prospects were, that she was probably disappointed. Would you agree? But let me say this, and this is a deep spiritual truth. Disappointed is not the worst place to be. Disappointed is not the worst place to be. It's actually a great launch point. Desperation is one of the great starting points in a spiritual life. 
Why were the tax collectors coming to Christ before the Pharisees? Why were the sinners, the drunks, the whores, the social degenerates, and their ilk, why were they coming to salvation? When Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, what did he mean by that? Think about the opposite, rich in spirit. Would you describe yourself as rich in spirit? He's saying, blessed are those who know how weak and pathetic and desperate they are. This woman is one of those. What makes the difference? What is, what is the, why were all of these people coming to Jesus before the Pharisees were? I'll tell you why. Awareness of sin. Nobody has to convince a drunk that he's destroying his life or destroying her family. They know it. They know it. No one has to tell the prostitute that what she's doing sexually is wrong. She looks at herself in the mirror every day. She's struggling with herself every day. Desperation and sin is a great launch point. So Jesus has interrupted her normal. Jesus has showed her that she's waiting for significance. She really wants to hear something. He threw cold water on whatever her hopes and dreams were and basically said, I know exactly who you are, and he made her confront it. Here is what is going on in your life. So that he could show her that she was waiting for salvation. She knows what it is to be known. When somebody knows you and they see who you really are, they reject you. That's what happens. This is when I get rejected and pushed away. And if she has been a serial adulteress, maybe she thinks she deserves it, right? Yeah, I mean, maybe all the women of the city view her as a toxic influence, and maybe that's how she views herself. How often has she been rejected? I wonder. How often? How much hurt is there? I wonder what scars are in place. Scars inflicted from other people. Scars that are inflicted by herself. I cannot imagine at this point in her life she likes herself. You've been there, haven't you? Where you look in the mirror and you hate the person you see. So if we're in this story and we don't know the ending, if we were in the midst of this and we had no idea how God's going to react to this woman and what she has done, we're leaning in right now. We're like, what is he going to say next? How does God deal with someone like this? But if you're a student of Old Testament history, you already know. How does God deal with the faithless? In Ezekiel chapter 16, God describes Israel, and he says this, I came along the road, and I found this baby that was abandoned. It's in its birth blood. It's just laying there, writhing in the birth blood. It has not been cared for. It has not been cleaned. It's just laying there waiting to die. And he says, I spoke to that baby, and I said, live. And he said, the baby, I caused this baby to live, and then I went on my way. And he says, I came back in that direction, and I saw that this, this baby had grown into a woman, and she was ready for marriage. But she was still nothing, and so I put my cloak over her. I promised, I pledged marriage to her. And I cleaned her with the washing of water, and I anointed her with oil, and I put on her all kinds of costly garments, and I gave her jewelry. And the world then could see how beautiful she was. She became my bride. And he's speaking about Israel. But then he says this to Israel. You have prostituted yourself with every person who walked past. Imagine, you've taken this, this woman and you made her into your bride and you are faithful to her and you've given her everything. And she goes and makes herself available to everyone who walks by. 
He says, you use the clothes I gave you, the fine clothes I gave you, to make yourself a prostitution shrine that is a pallet for dishonoring yourself with others. You gave yourself to other gods, and you gave the things I gave you to these other gods. He says, you offered them in sacrifice. You even slaughter your sons and daughters, the daughters of our marriage. You slaughter them to these other deities. This passage in Ezekiel gets so crass that I can't actually say everything that is in this passage because I would flush red to the ears and I would probably get letters from some of you tomorrow morning. God is exemplifying the disgust that one should have over a messed up marriage like this. A woman who prostitutes herself, but then God does the unthinkable. He says something no slighted husband would. Look at Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 60 through 63. Ezekiel 16, 60 through 63. Nevertheless, I will remember with compassion my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember your ways and will be ashamed when you receive your sisters, both your older and younger. I will give them to you as daughters, but not because they were covenant with me. And I will establish my covenant with you, and you will know without any doubt that I am the Lord. So that you will remember in detail and be ashamed and never open your mouth again because of your humiliation. When I have forgiven you for all that you have done, says the Lord God. Here is God who says, look at how wicked this adulteress is. I'll take her back. She'll be mine again. If you've read the book of Hosea, you know this. God speaks to this prophet Hosea, and he says, here's what I want you to do, Hosea. Go buy yourself a prostitute for a wife. She will be unfaithful to you. And Hosea, as a prophet, says, yes, Lord. And he has to go spend his life with an adulteress, and they have children together. And she leaves him and goes down into the city and begins selling herself again and again and again. You have to imagine... Uh, people coming up to Hosea and saying, you know, mocking, Hosea, I had your wife this morning. Not so good. And you imagine righteous people coming up to Hosea and saying, how could a godly man like you marry a woman like that? And Hosea looking at them and saying, how could a godly God like as ours, a righteous God like ours, marry a people like you? But here's what happens to Hosea. At one point, his wife goes into the city. She's selling herself and and God says to Hosea, I want you to go into the town and I want you to pay for your wife and bring her back. And so he goes and he pays a prostitute's price for his wife and brings her back into his household. The story here is not that marital unfaithfulness is okay and can be overlooked. The story is that God, though he is scorned, though he is rejected, though he is humiliated, will himself pay the cost to restore a faithless bride. Lest we make the mistake of thinking that we are meant to identify with Jesus in this story. Look, I, I get it. We, might, we identify with him on some level, right? We've talked about how he evangelizes here. But you will never identify with Jesus until you first identify with the adulteress who's here. This Samaritan woman, that's who we are. Until you have seen yourself as that, don't bother putting yourself in Jesus' shoes. He's showing up in our life. He's interrupting our normal and our comfortable to tell us that the price is paid, that God is ready to restore us and allow us to have a relationship with him and to do so in spirit and in truth. Why did Jesus go to Samaria? Why go this way? You know, most good Jews 
across the Jordan River, and they go up through the region of Perea, and then they cross the Jordan River again if they're going to go from Galilee to uh, Judah or from Judah to Galilee. They take hours and days of extra time to get around this region so they don't have to deal with Samaritans. And Jesus drives right through the heart of Samaria and comes to this well, and I don't believe he does so by accident. Jesus says he does everything by the will of the Father. I believe God wanted to show us something in this story. She is waiting for a real connection with God. This woman said to her in verse 19, the woman said, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, he is. I perceive you are a prophet. And then she says this, and I, I just get this sense that she wants the conversation to keep going. Like she's getting this glimpse of something that's beginning to happen, and she just wants to keep talking. I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and yet you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where we must worship. She's falling back on religious differences of Jews and Samaritans. Why? Because I think she wants the conversation to just go forward. There's got to be something else we can talk about. If this man is a prophet, this man could be a real connection with God. I can learn something of God from this. Could Could I hear a word from God today? Verse 21, Jesus says to her, Believe me, woman, that a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But a time is coming, and even now has arrived, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Her question to him is, which path gets me to God? Is it on these mountains? Can I find God in these mountains? Is it going to Jerusalem? Which path should a person pursue to find God? And Jesus says, God's looking for you. God is outside seeking some people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. It's not that you have to find him. He's out to find you. I wonder if any of her husbands ever came looking. If they did, I don't suppose it was to reestablish relationship. What must it feel like to be hopelessly separated from God and so tainted by sin that people won't even let you near a place of worship and to hear that God is out seeking you? Jesus has interrupted her in her isolation, her daily drudgery. Jesus isn't going to have it. Jesus interrupted her routine and dismissals to show her that she's waiting on more than physical needs. Jesus interrupted her self-deception regarding her own sin to show her that she was waiting on more than a relationship. He revealed her depravity and her desperation. Jesus interrupted her religious presumptions and showed her that what she's really waiting for is a relationship with God, and then he told her how to get there. Everyone say the word, you catastrophe. You catastrophe. You might not be familiar with this word. Eucatastrophe is a word created by J.R.R. Tolkien. When you're intelligent enough and you have enough degrees, you get to make up your own words. And Tolkien made up this word. It is a beautiful word. Eucatastrophe. This is, this is what it means. It means the precise opposite of a catastrophe. A cat- catastrophe is when something terrible happens unexpectedly. A eucatastrophe, by contrast, is when something unexpectedly good or great occurs. You see this in Tolkien's novels with the coming of the eagles 
or the, you know, the emergence of Aragorn. You have these moments where everything looks to be entirely dark, and then suddenly hope arrives, and it's there in a moment. And if you've read the books and gone through them or you've, you've read his works, you see these moments, and that part of you, that spirit within you leaps and goes, there's something good here about the unexpected arrival of something great. Here's what Tolkien said. We get a glimpse of joy in the heart's desire that for a moment passes outside of frame. It rends indeed the web of the story and lets a gleam come through. Our God delights in the unexpected arrival. Yeah. He, yeah, he does. He shows up to save the day when all hope seems lost, when things are at their darkest. Our God is a God of you catastrophe. When this woman went to the well to draw water, I doubt very seriously she expected to see God at the well. I doubt she expected anything great to happen. I doubt she even expected things to rise to the position of normal. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. You see how Jesus brought her to this point where she went, I know what I'm waiting for. It's Messiah, it's Savior. I know what I need. I wonder how she said these words to him. Was this exasperation? Was this elation? Was this expectation? Was there a quaver in her voice? And if so, was it from brokenness or an earnest desire to hear something else? We are all awaiting a Savior. Every human being you've ever met is waiting for something. They're waiting for the encounter with God. Every human being you have ever met is waiting for someone, a Savior, Messiah, somebody who shows up to save Jesus' discussion with the woman of the well was to bring her to that acknowledgement, and now that she has acknowledged that he is going to acknowledge something to her. Verse 26, we're all waiting for Jesus. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one speaking to you. You catastrophe. You could not have expected this. This woman should never have expected this, and yet our God shows us that as degenerate as you might be, he will show up. If you haven't yet met him yet, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? The life of a five-time loser who was rejected, broken, and forgotten, forlorn, and without hope. This is your story. If you've ever asked the question, could God forgive someone like me, the answer is in this story. God knows you, and he still seeks you, knowing what you are, knowing who you are. He still offers that water of life. It is an extended opportunity for you. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? There is no one else. There's no other name in heaven or on earth or under the earth by which man might be saved. If you know Christ, you've had a great you catastrophe. Amen? Light has broken through. The dawn has come. Salvation has arrived. God sought you. He bought you. And he has brought you back. You are now a source of living water. That is how he describes you. And so here's the great story. Even after you have met him, you catastrophe. We're still waiting for the next moment in the darkest hour for an appearance. If hope is fading, remember, remember, remember who you are waiting for. Let's pray. Our God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for loving a woman at a well and showing us what you have to offer that you will take back that you will claim us even in our darkest place. Father, we praise you for being who you are. Help us to be more like you.
It is in your most precious name we pray, and we wait, Lord Jesus.